Welcome to Music and Medicine. My name is Jacques Osmo, and music is my life. In this show, we will discuss the newest research on the intersection of music and medicine from scientific, musical, and historical perspectives. And most importantly, I hope that what you hear in this program will help you identify how to use music to make your own life healthier and happier. Today, we have a great pleasure of having with us Professor Michael Trimble. Professor Trimble is a neuroscientist who was for many years Professor of Behavioral Neurology and Consultant Physician to the Department of Psychological Medicine at the National Hospital, Queen Square, London, where he currently holds emeritus status. He has written 13 books and edited many more, the latter largely related to the interface between neurology and psychiatry. Professor Trimble, welcome. Very pleased to uh, have this interview, particularly with somebody who's very interested in the areas that I'm interested in. So you're a neuroscientist with a great interest in music, I understand. Correct. I am not a musician, but I have a great interest in music. And the, the neuroscience actually comes from my first degree and lifelong interest, which is in neuroanatomy. which I hold as a very, very central discipline. If you want to understand the brain, you have to start with neuroanatomy. One of your important works is the book titled Why Humans Like to Cry. So let us start our discussion today by saying a few words about the links between music and emotions. Uh, Many, many, many people um, with regards to music Mm -hmm. have spent their time analyzing music. How is it constructed? How are different compositions put together? What the different uh, notations are? What speed a piece of music should be played? And and they go into great detail about the music itself, not the effect of music on us, on homo sapiens, on humans. And the important thing, the important starting point is that my interest is in my experiences. Why am I moved to music? What is it to do with emotion and music? An area which so many people are so afraid or don't want to discuss that. So academic musical scholarship for so long has been tied up in the precision, the mathematical issues to do with how music is constructed and whatever, uh, as opposed to the effect that it has on us. Now, the whole field uh, is really referred to as neuroesthetics, to do with the link between neurological features and factors and aesthetics. It was actually a discipline which uh, evolved in 19th century Europe, particularly the, the German philosophers and German musicians. At that time, it was difficult to understand exactly how the brain uh, unraveled our emotional experiences or allowed our bodies to have the emotional experiences. And the mind-brain problem, uh, something which we still haven't resolved, didn't become a really good central issue till the 20th century. And then more recently, the whole series of looking at consciousness. What are we conscious of and how are we conscious? Now, if you look in the consciousness literature, virtually nothing about music at all. However, the story evolves very briefly in this way. 
Um, with some other colleagues, I set out looking at emotional responses to the arts. Because there are some people who say, well, there's no difference between the arts. I mean, painting is the same as music. And I, I know that isn't the case. Uh, and I'm sure uh, when you think about it, you realize that the responses that one has to music are totally different to painting. Now, the other thing is that um, being involved with the central nervous system and with emotional responses and with my background, I was extremely interested to know what was so different about the brain of homo sapiens, humans, and the brain of chimpanzees or of other animals. So let's just take the primates for a moment, uh, our nearest relatives. They don't like music. So if you take a chimpanzee in a cage and you put music at one end, mm -hmm. you'll find they don't spend their time there. They go to the other end of the cage. And this has been shown in several animal species that we... Homo sapiens, humans, are the only living species that has emotional responses to music. Now, I'm not saying that somebody will say, well, my dog enjoys music. Mm -hmm. Fair enough. But the elephant that cries actually isn't crying because of an emotional response. The other thing is we are the only species alive that entrains to music. In other words, entrainment where our body absorbs, takes in exterior or external rhythms. So when you think about it, we are the only species that can stay up all night dancing. So dancing, I mean, again, you can, you, you can train an elephant to beat a few drums or to dance for a circus, but Homo sapiens is the only species that dances emotionally, is receptive to dancing and music. But then the third factor is we're the only living species that cries emotionally.
We've just heard Dal Mio Permesso Amato, a piece from Claudio Monteverdi's opera L'Orfeo, conducted by John Elliott Gardner. In it, the spirit of music sets the stage. Singing with my golden lyre, she says, I like to charm now and then mortal ears, and in such a fashion that I make their souls aspire more for the resounding harmony of the lyre of heaven. I set out about looking for these emotional responses in the various arts. And the issue is that uh, if you get an audience, and we looked at several uh, audiences with Japan, in Central Europe, in the UK, about 90% of an audience will say that they cry to music, cry tears. Mm -hmm. Now, let me be clear, I'm not saying that you, you won't get tears if you have salt in your eye or something like that, but crying emotionally to tears. So with poetry, which of course is well known to be evocative for, for crying actually, but it's only about 60%. Music uh, tops the list. If you ask about paintings, about 5% of people will say that they cry to paintings architecture and sculpture people say oh, it's beautiful it's lovely you know but they don't cry there are always some exceptions to that and we a lot of people love all of these art forms but the idea that they're all the same when it comes to evoking our emotions uh, clearly wasn't the case so crying was fundamental to this story so when in the development from an anthropological perspective did 
we homo sapiens become mm. those who could dance those who could cry uh, and be emotionally aroused by music is a fascinating question mm -hmm. uh, the idea that uh, proto uh, or, or our forefathers did not get emotional responses from music would seem quite out of the question because they danced and dancing around a fire campfire this kind of thing they would be in hunter-gatherer groups mm -hmm. and uh, there are important aspects to that but there's one more that i'll just throw in before we go on to other things what else happens that in that community so you have a group of hunter-gatherers and then one of their members dies or disappears and the idea of loss and then lamenting that loss in some kind of ritual must have emerged. Now, all mammals dream. And the idea that uh, dreaming did not occur to people in these hunter-gatherer communities. And that within dreams, as happens to all of us, you would dream of a person who has passed on, who has died. So how could they explain to themselves that there was this world that other people managed to go to? Mm -hmm. And this, together with music, with dancing uh, and crying, all links together uh, with religion and the seeking of a transcendental other, a transcendental experience.
We've just heard Lascia Chiopianga from George Frederick Handel's Rinaldo, performed by Joyce Di Donato, accompanied by Il Pomodoro, directed by Maxim Emelianchev. We are speaking with the British neuroscientist, Professor Michael Trimble. May I please just ask you before we go on, you mentioned earlier that our reaction to music will not be the same as our re- reaction to painting or our reaction to other arts. One thing that has become evident over the course of my own study of clinical uses of music is that there is so much more study of healing effects of music than healing effects of any other arts or pretty much of any other discipline of that kind in Western culture in particular. So what do you think about that? Well, okay, this is a different track, but I can spend a few minutes on it. Neuroesthetics is a word I mentioned. Mm -hmm. And you're referring to music therapy. That's correct. And I have been quite involved with that. Um, The um, field that I have lectured most about is with neurological illness. Okay. And uh, there's some evidence growing slowly that, for example, with Parkinson's disease, music therapy can be useful. But people are now becoming aware that it's not just playing any music, mm-hmm. but you have to select music that is, by the way, not what the patient most likes, but something which has the entrained uh, rhythms and beats mm-hmm. that can help with the motoric problems of people with Parkinson's disease. This. This music therapy for stroke, which uh, particularly with the strokes with the left hemisphere, where the right hemisphere still allows uh, more movements and emotion, Mm -hmm. I think that's probably gone less far. There's much interest now in music therapy for dementia. But again, uh, it is difficult, this field, because people say, oh, dementia, music therapy. But there's so many different forms of dementia. And people are now just beginning again to pull apart. What is it about music which is important for helping people with dementia? Not just that they can remember an old rhyme and, and song mm-hmm. that they, you know. So I think it's an area which is extremely relevant and it needs much more of a basic scientific backing. The work that I'm involved with at the moment actually has to do with music um, therapy in, in epilepsy. Okay. And looking at the way that um, people with severe epilepsy who um, have quite abnormal EEGs, of course, mm-hmm. how it should be possible with music to influence the EEG in some way back to more normal forms. Okay. So and, could and, you please tell us before we go on, just to explain to our listeners, what is epilepsy? What causes it? And so that we can continue talking about the influence of music yeah. in that context. Um, all right. Well, epilepsy is a disturbance of the central nervous system mm-hmm. where often it can be genetic, it uh, can be um, due to many causes, but often it's used to, like head injury, somebody will develop an area of the brain which is damaged, um, which leads to a scar formation, which leads to abnormal electrical activity uh, Mm -hmm. being driven from that scar formation that can lead to considerable disruption with a major generalized seizure. 
Um, nowadays, its prognosis is very much better with medications. Okay. Uh, but the reason that we are interested, and again, I think maybe this is fundamental to what you've just been asking me to talk about, music is a way of stimulating the brain. Mm -hmm. So people think, oh, music, well, phew, you know, but actually we know it stimulates the brain. And there are some people who have a form of epilepsy called musicogenic epilepsy, okay. whereby people can have a seizure triggered by a piece of music. Oh. So again, it just emphasizes that music isn't just something abstract that you turn on your uh, headphones mm -hmm. or whatever. It actually stimulates the brain. And that applies to whether you're looking for treatments in dementia or whether you're looking for treatments in other disorders. But as I said, we are looking at ways of altering. It sounds simple, but it's very complicated. But we actually want to sonify, that is to turn into music, the rhythms of the EEG. And then through a system called the X system, which has been developed by um, Nigel Osborne, who is a colleague of mine, working in conjunction with other people, of course, there's a way of taking the rhythms of the EEG and turning them into music. But the, the that system, is amazing. Yeah. Well, the system has access to millions of tracks of music. Mm -hmm. So it can then look at musical examples that are similar to the abnormal EEG sonified waves or rhythms okay. and look for variants that can then be played back to people with a view to trying to moderate their EEG abnormalities. And so we're looking at this system to help people with, with difficult to control epilepsy, that's for sure. Anyway, but music is brain stimulation. And one of the things that music does is stimulate those areas of the brain, which influence our, our emotions. Um, and that's why you get the uh, issue of music and, and tears and crying or joy. Um, I mustn't forget joy here. <laughs> well, that is a, that is a positive reaction. <laughs> Well, we were asked to do a study on um, people who had won the lottery. So the lottery fund phoned me and said, we, we don't understand this, Prof, but um, when we hand people a check for a million pounds, they burst out crying. And, of course, <laughs> you would expect them, you know. And what we, we did a survey and literally 95% well, of people uh, were emotion, emotionally, cried emotionally uh, when they uh, received the money, or even more so when they received the money with their family with them. Uh, you know, it was such an emotional moment. And so, but those were tears of joy.
I imagine this is how winning the lottery might feel like. We've just heard Ode to Joy from Ludwig van Beethoven's Symphony No. 9, conducted by Sir George Schulte. Today, our guest is the British neuroscientist, Professor Michael Trimble. In our previous conversation, you, you mentioned that you just finished a book called Death in Opera. Yes. It sounds fascinating. Can you tell us a bit about that, please? Yeah. Well, one of the things is that nobody's particularly interested in the past. So you've got realms of books on, uh, well, I can bring back Wagner, but there are realms mm-hmm. of books on you know, music, how it works and whatever. But death in opera, there have been two or three books. Mm-hmm. And it's quite interesting that they tend to 
downplay the importance which we'll come on to that I'm particularly interested in and tend to overemphasize um, that, well, why is it that it's often women or more often women that die? You know, why aren't there more men who die in opera and that kind of thing? Mm. And uh, and this is evidence of misogyny, for example. And um, uh, surely, you know, why can't the sexes be equal? But the answer is they can't be equal because the male, the tenor and the bass have a different resonance musically to soprano, for example, or castrati, I suppose, going back a long, long time. But the actual soprano voice is something which captivates men and women alike. So there's something about the music differences between male voice and female voice uh, that are interlinked with this story, which is why the males are often those who die at the beginning of the opera, somebody shoots them or somebody poisons them, or in the middle of the opera, um, where they may succumb to illness or whatever. But many less males die at the end of the operas. And so one of the books that wrote about this referred to the whole concept of unexplained death. Mm -hmm. Right? They're unexplained. You know, why? And, and there are quotations that um, you know, a large number of operas have unexplained deaths. They're usually at the end of the operas. They're more often female uh, and unexplained. So we set about to explaining the unexplained deaths. So with my colleagues, uh, Dale Hesdorfer from Columbia in New York and uh, Robert Letellier here at Cambridge, uh, all going to opera, uh, knowing a lot about opera. Well, my friend Robert does particularly know much more than I do. But we're sitting there, we're watching the operas, and we say, oh, why did she die? Make a note, make a note. So <laughs> we, um, we, we got to, to 50 unexplained operas, uh, unexplained deaths in operas. So may I just ask you, did you focus on 19th century opera or romantic opera, or did you go earlier? That's a very, very good point. Uh, it all starts with Orpheus, of course. And, um, Monteverdi. Very, uh, well, yes, Monteverdi, yes, of course, but it, it's, the, it's the early... Uh, 1600s, um, mm -hmm. where uh, the Orpheus uh, story begins. And the Orpheus story is about love and death and, and seeking and yearning and, uh, to some extent, um, visiting the underworld. Mm -hmm. I mean, again, you can't understand opera if you don't understand things to do with the underworld. But the problem, well, we certainly start there. Um, and we follow the development of the Orpheus story um, as it oh, goes on through the mm -hmm. early uh, Romantic uh, period, look, operas and uh, so on. In fact, we do go through to Harrison Birtwistle and what happens now. But the Orpheus story runs like a, a stream all the way through opera generally, mm -hmm. really. Um, and um, But when we started looking, and the, so I have to say one thing. There are hundreds of operas that have never, ever reached the canon. In other words, we, we don't know about them. We know that um, Ver people like um, uh, Verdi did a lot of operas that many now still don't reach the stage. Mm -hmm. 
um, and Vivaldi. How often do you see Vivaldi opera on the stage? I mean, Absolutely. He, oh, I mean, he there are many others. There are many others. Exactly. There's many other composers yeah. too. Yeah. So we weren't selective, especially, but we were selective within uh, the mainly the ones that are in the canon because those that we see. But more than that, uh, we were familiar with a lot of the librettos. And so we looked at a lot of uh, librettos from about um, uh, the end of the 18th, uh, 18th century, the beginning of the 19th, all the way through the 19th into the 20th century. And there are some things that are clear. Firstly, let's start with the female deaths. They outnumbered considerably the male deaths in the 19th century. Okay. 20th century, males don't come off so well. Uh, there are more deaths of males in 20th century authors. Mm -hmm. But that's worth considering, which we'll come back to. Secondly, the um, uh, deaths in particularly, again, the females and not the males, with an exception I'll come to, the females, the deaths are at the end. I mean, there's the culminating uh, uh, feature of many of these operas. However, there is there are a number of those operas that we looked at, and you will know, of course, where males and females die at the same time.
We've just heard Richard Wagner's Mildun Leise Villa Held from his opera Tristan and Isolde, performed by Cheryl Studer, accompanied by Bayerische Raundfunks Orchestra, conducted by Jeffrey Tate. We looked at 50 librettos. Mm-hmm. Wagner was the more outstanding of all of the composers. So the, he, he had, well, it's about here, there were about six examples of Wagner's operas where you have unex, unexplained deaths for some people and certainly unexpected. You know, why, why does his older die? 
She's singing. You can't sing yourself to death, can you? Well, but just medically, what was being discovered about at that time, the early 19th century and then onwards, people were gaining an interest in the heart because um, there was the idea that um, there's a physiology of the brain that links in with physiology, including the heart. And uh, some of the German neurophysiologists were able to point out that music was not something which was created outside. It was all written down outside. Mm -hmm. But the music, the phenomenology, the experiences of music, what we get from music comes from within us. And people discovered the autonomic nervous system. Um, again, I audience may not, I might not know about that, but as you're sitting there, as I'm sitting here, we have feelings which are generated by the autonomic nervous system inside us. And uh, something happens quite suddenly behind you, your heart beats a bit faster. Uh, go to an opera and you'll find if you do recordings of, we've done some recordings of heart rate and one or two other things in people look watching opera and saying how the heart rate dramatically changes millisecond by millisecond. It's not that, oh, my heart's going fast, bump, bump, bump. Actually, the heart is one of the indices of, uh, of your emotional state. So in Germany in particular, there was a lot of interest in the development of the, that nervous system, which gives us what we would call interoception. So while you're looking at me, you mm -hmm. see me, if you like, from extraoception. But what you have inside you, uh, for your feelings, are interoceptive. And what is it that gives us the interior feelings that we have. And there's, a, there's a, a, a magnificent nerve that runs all the way from the limbic areas of the brain. Those are the areas of the brain which are linked with emotional resonances and emotional experiences, linked running all the way down actually into the uh, abdomen and controlling abdominal movements, but in particular heart movements, the vagus nerve. So neurophysiology was driving forward ideas that it is experiences are within us not outside and then there was the literature growing around uh, the development eventually of psychoanalysis and freudian interpretations of our emotional events and people were putting together a neuroanatomy showing that there were certain areas of the brain uh, which, if stimulated in animals in those days, but now it's has been done in humans, would lead to emotional responses. So what was going on in the brain and what the link of the brain was to those things I was talking about, which is the uh, ability to entrain. That is wonderful. So in, in terms of these causes of death in opera, yes. can you tell us a little bit about what they could be or well, what yes, were it, they envisioned to be? Yeah, well, it, it, that's what the book is about. Mm -hmm. So going back only a few minutes, we, we, we stopped at 50 uh, librettos where there was um, an unexpected death. Okay. And I've said they were mainly in females in the 19th century, males in the 20th century, mainly at the end of the opera in females, uh, less so in, in, in the males. Now, we talked about the heart. So we analyzed the librettos for evidence of instability of these internal rhythms in mm -hmm. the protagonists that died. 
So what were we looking for? Uh, I don't know if you want to talk about another Wagner opera, um, <laughs> but if, if you if you if you um, uh, look at the what happens to the females, let's say, you will find that um, they it isn't by the way just saying, oh, I love you, you 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 know I, you you affect my heart. It's there will be something happening, and maybe. Somebody who knows the person will say, "Oh, look, she's coming onto the. St- she's coming in now. She's pale. She's trembling." Um, and uh, many of the uh, people, males as well as females, but mainly females, had tremors, faints, falls, and um, so evidence for autonomic instability was what we were really looking for. And certainly, all of the unexpected deaths were not due to autonomic disturbances, but quite a lot were. And I've got a table. I I, I don't need to go over the exact figures, but uh, the, the table is autonomic instability was a feature of the protagonists of many of the deaths. Can I ask you? So, so you think that the composers or librettists actually had particular ailments in mind, or did they use these? These things simply for for cultural connotations that this person faints or this person yeah. dies. Or... I, I think it it was largely cultural in one sense, um, and certainly as we if we go a little back further in time. And by the way, we didn't find much in the way of um, these autonomic abnormalities in the operas before the um, the nineteenth century. But they were they were there. For example, the operas um, uh, earlier on that we mentioned the Italian operas and whatever. Mm-hmm. But the Italians seem less involved with this. Uh, but I think um, people were becoming aware of medical factors that led for reasons for dying. Okay. So um, syphilis, of course, was something which was very prominent in Europe, well, all over the world in this period of time. Um, So the idea that um, uh, people could develop a mental illness, uh, why did they develop a mental illness? What was it um, that led people to go mad on the stage? I mean, why did Lucia go mad? Mm-hmm. Uh, she was forced to marry somebody she didn't want to marry. She stabbed him. And, of course, it's one of the greatest tragic scenes in opera when she comes down the stairs, often in white, covered in blood. So madness. Now, madness was becoming rather an important um, part of medicine. There were neurologists. Actually, there weren't neurologists. There were doctors who practiced what I call neuropsychiatry, actually. Mm-hmm. But they would be neurologists at that time trying to classify diseases, you know, what multiple sclerosis, Parkinson's disease, trying to classify them. Uh, and neurology did well and became a very independent discipline. Psychiatry was, they were the alienists. They dealt with madness and they were seen in different places. They went to the asylums. So there was a growing power, wrong word, there was a growing prominence of asylums people going to asylums and staying in for some time, and doctors classifying asylums, and they became the alienists and then later the psychiatrists. And they were dealing, of course, with quite severe uh, mental illness. But this particular interest in the autonomic activity, uh, the rise of the unconscious, um, which culminated with with Freud, but he certainly wasn't the first person mm-hmm. to to talk about the unconscious. When Nietzsche, of course, uh, wrote um, <laughs> wrote Freud before Freud wrote his ideas yes. down, but but Freud never really acknowledged Nietzsche. But the idea of the unconscious 
um, was was embedded within these theories. So there was the medicine, there was the unconscious, and there was the development of psychiatry, leading to people being actually a frightened of of madness. But why why did people go mad? Um, well, part of it is shown in opera. People went mad because they had a vulnerable backdrop. I mean, if you mm-hmm. take Lucia again, I mean, you know, she has lots of cardiac problems and tremors and and she was vulnerable um, uh, before she came into this terrible situation. So well, I hope that answers your question. Yes, it does. And this is really fascinating. I'm, I'm wondering, when do you think that the, the book will be in print? Uh, well, it's it's with the printers, the printers okay. at the moment. So it, it hopefully it'll be out crying why humans like to cry is in paperback that's a very cheap um and uh, but what what is interesting is that people are so ashamed about crying so you know you get people uh, clearly they're sad and they and they they say oh i'm so sorry why do you have to be sorry uh, when you have this by the way i think crying as i said is a human attribute It's an attribute of homo sapiens, of being human. Mm-hmm. And we would not be human without music. So crying and music are deeply, deeply relevant to being a human being and being able to bring not only to others uh, who are you know, your friends and your colleagues, whatever, but also as a doctor to other people, uh, which brings in the whole area of, of music therapy, which you're so interested in. Professor Trimble, thank you so very much for being with us today. And so we come to the end of today's program. Today, our guest was Professor Michael Trimble. Professor Trimble is a neuroscientist who was for many years a professor of behavior neurology and consultant physician to the Department of Psychological Medicine at the National Hospital, Queen Square, London where he now holds emeritus status. He has written 13 books, among them Why Humans Like to Cry, published by Oxford University Press in 2014, and the upcoming book on death in opera. Until next time, stay happy and healthy, and keep listening.